0: that time of year again. We're already back around to it. This coming Thursday is Thanksgiving, a day when our nation will largely gather together to once again celebrate, celebrate God's bounty, celebrate God's blessing, and gather in remembrance of the first Thanksgiving feast, as it were, involving the pilgrims and the indians in historic 1621 new england you know back in new england where karen and i were raised there's a lot of history back there especially regarding the events i've just spoken about you can visit historic plymouth rock where the pilgrims supposedly first stepped out onto the rock-bound shores of the new world you can go to place there called plymouth plantation and what it is is a a place that is set up like they assume that the original Plymouth colony was set up and there are people in costumes there of, of that time and they will talk to you about all those different things. There's also a, a replica of the Mayflower, the Mayflower too that you can go on and you can visit with people that are dressed in the costume of the age. So there's a lot of history this time of year back there that kind of comes to light. As we consider the upcoming National Thanksgiving holiday, I'd like us this morning to take and consider some parallels. I'd like for us to consider some parallels between the birth, the growth, the struggles and the direction of this country as compared to the birth and the growth and the struggles and the potential direction of a lot of New Testament Christians. Consider with me the following. It was King James who ruled England. King James I ruled England from 1603 to 1625. For those of you that are holding a King James version of the Bible this morning, it was printed in 1611. Uh, that kind of ties in, obviously, to King James having had that printed. Again, he ruled from 1603 to 1625. It was approximately one year prior to the release of the King James Bible in 1611, approximately a year, in 1610, when the pilgrims, who we call the pilgrims today, they fled King James's England the first time, and they went to live in Holland. They were fleeing religious persecution, and they were seeking a place to practice their religion as they saw fit. You see, the pilgrims recognized the fact that the Catholic Church, as well as the Church of England, the official Church of the realm, as it were, had gone way beyond what the Bible taught. And so they wanted to go back and live the way they thought the Bible taught. They did not want to participate, and in fact, they did not participate and were persecuted because they would not participate in the rituals of both the Catholic Church as well as the Church of England. As a result, King James sought to have them arrested, sought to have them thrown in jail for non-compliance, and so the pilgrims went to Holland seeking religious freedom. They were there for over a decade, but here's the thing. Although they found religious freedom there and they could practice their religion however they wanted to, because the, the government of Holland was a lot more lenient or liberal or progressive, That's a two-edged sword, because although they could do what they wanted to there, they found that everybody else could do what they wanted to there as well. That's one of the problems with being overly liberal. And so, it caused a problem for them. The The Dutch culture that had given them that freedom in the first place gave everybody else a lot of freedoms too, and so they were not comfortable at all there. And they also had difficulty supporting themselves because they were seen as outsiders. So they encountered a lot of problems. Then they had the fear that their children would lose their English heritage and customs, and so they returned to Southampton, England in August of 1620 to set sail for the new world where they could hopefully at last enjoy the freedom to worship as they wanted. Now, as I, as I talk about that, I can't help but think of some people today, some people out in our world today who are seeking an escape they're seeking an escape from those things which have taken them prisoner as it were and so they they go into a church and they're looking for they're looking for the truth and they they go into some of these man-made churches and they they look around and they they want to be able to to find something that's really biblical but all they find in a lot of these places that are so liberal is all they find is entertainment they don't find the power of the gospel to change their lives They don't. They search and they find some place that's willing to welcome everybody, but by welcoming them, it welcomes all kinds of people that are doing all kinds of things, and it doesn't set up any deterrence. And so they're not comfortable there because they realize that it's not what the Bible says. And so they leave those places unfulfilled, brethren. We need to find those people. We need to find those people so that they can worship the way the Bible says. They're still out there. They're still looking for freedom. But the liberalism and entertainment of so many religious organizations they find hollow and empty originally there were two ships the mayflower and the speedwell the speedwell was a leaky old ship and they didn't get very far they had to return to england reorganize and based on their faith and their belief in the providence of god they set sail for a new world they set sail across this vast ocean. Driven by their hope for a new life in the new world, they crossed the sea, and they arrived on the rock-bound coast of what would later become known as New England in November 1620. As I consider that, it's amazing to me to stop and think back in the Bible. And remember, I said I was going to compare what the so-called pilgrims went through with, with what some New Testament Christians go through, Another parallel I see here as I stop and think about that, have you ever considered how many times in the Bible that God himself has in one way or another used separation by water? How God repeatedly uses water to separate and to free people who are truly seeking him from those things which would engulf them and ensnare them and enslave them. Have you ever thought about that? You see, that Atlantic Ocean, that big body of water that the pilgrims crossed, was just as essential to their separation from their oppressor and his servants as the waters of Noah's day separated him and his family from the sin and oppression of their world in Genesis 6 and 7, just as the waters of the Red Sea separated god's people from the egyptians who had enslaved them and would like to enslave them again in exodus 14. we see the same pattern in the new testament peter talks in 1 peter 321 about baptism which now saves us corresponding to noah in his day and and we know how baptism separates us from the sin that would oppress us romans 6 is all about this how when we are baptized into christ The water separates us. There's nothing in the water, but it's an act of faith and a clean conscience toward God. But it is water that separates us from the sins of our world. You know, as we continue to look on at this, pilgrims landed in 1620. And they emerged from their watery sojourn and supposedly set their still wet feet on Plymouth Rock. They were now separated from their oppressors. They were free to live a new life. But, as you think about that, think about what would come with it. Same thing we see in the Bible. The Israelites, they were freed in Exodus 14, right? Red Sea came back over the Egyptians and all of that. And the Israelites of Exodus 14 also emerged from their watery sojourn and set... Their feet on the opposite shore, ready to live a new life in a new world as well. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4, they all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. See the same pattern with a new New Testament Christian, don't we? Stop and think about it. When we are baptized into Christ, when, when we are immersed for the forgiveness of our sins. Emerging from that watery grave of baptism, that that watery grave that, that separates us from our past sins, what do we do? We're now free to what? Live a new life. In a new world in the sense that we see it differently. A new world, a new way of living, because we have repented, we too come out from the water and we build our lives on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Isn't that correct? What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7, 24 through 27? He talks about the man who builds his house on the sand and the man who builds his house on the rock. We come out and we stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and that is where we build our lives, when we leave the water. just as the Israelites left the water in a new world, as did the pilgrims. But even when the pilgrims landed, even when the Israelites landed, as it were, they still had battles to fight, didn't they? They still had battles to fight. Pilgrims were in a hostile new world. God's people in the Old Testament, as they, as they crossed, they still had battles to fight. Read the book of Joshua. They still had to be well-armed. They needed to be ready for battle. Because even though they lived in a new world, it was a hostile new world in a lot of ways. For us, it is only because we are armed with the full power that comes from the constant sharpening and strengthening of the sword of the Spirit, God's Word, which enables us to be victorious. Because listen, here's the thing that we so often forget for others. When we come out of that watery grave of baptism and we're we're walking in newness of life and the world is new and behold, God has made all things new for us, there's still battles to fight, aren't there? There are still battles to win. We need to be ready to win those battles. The only way we're going to win those battles is if we have on the full armor of God. If we study, if we show ourselves approved, if we we take up the full armor of God, and we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and we are well trained in its use, where would these people be? Where would the pilgrims have been in the battles they had to fight if they had no weapons? They'd have lost. We wouldn't be here today. We have weapons of our warfare which are not carnal, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. You see, we must never forget that despite both the Israelites and the pilgrims' newfound freedom, on the other side of that watery wall of separation, they still had to face desperate hardships. They still had to face deadly battles and a whole new way of life in a hostile new world. In fact, so important was it that they carried weapons that they were always ready for the next battle. Did you know that in historic New England in those days that there was actually a time it was illegal to come to church without a gun? It was actually illegal to come to church without a gun. Because they might have to fight off enemies. Listen to this. According to www.mayflowerhistory.com, under the heading Church and Religion, the following. At Plymouth, the Pilgrims' Church was the bottom floor of the town's fort. The top floor held six cannons and a watchtower to defend the colony. Isaac D. Roserius, who visited Plymouth in 1627, reported how the Pilgrims began their church on Sunday. Quote, they assemble by beat of drum, each with his musket or firelock in front of the captain's door. They have their cloaks on and place themselves in order, three abreast, and are led by the sergeant without beat of drum. Behind comes the governor in a long robe. Beside him on the right hand comes the preacher with his cloak on, and on the left hand the captain with his side arms and cloak on and with a small cane in his hand. So they march in good order. Each sets his arms down near him during the early years of Pl- unquote. During the early years of Plymouth, failing to bring your gun to church was an offense for which you could be fined 12 pence. They had to be able to defend brethren. This is one of the things that we need to make sure that we always get new converts into a Bible study that is a regular Bible study. When they come out of the watery grave and they live in a new world, that is going to be hostile to them on many, many, many levels. They're going to have many battles to fight and they need to be well armed. We need to make sure they are in a Bible study. We need to make sure, not just in church, but we need to make sure that we continually engage them in Bible study, that they've always got their sword of the spirit, that they've got their armor on because there are many battles even after they're set free. You know, if you stop and think about it, think about the Israelites. Think about them for a minute. The Israelites, watery wall of separation between them and their oppressors, they come out, and what happens? Did some of them want to go back to their oppressors? Some of them wanted to go back. Well, you know, we should have. We, we should. We should go back. You know, if you read a lot about the early Plymouth Colony, there were some of those settlers who thought maybe that they should return as well to England. And you know, when life got really, really hard for them, it's it's understandable why. And you know something we need to understand, but New Testament Christians, when they come out of the water, they're going to be tempted to go back to the world they lived in. It's going to be tough on them. There's going to be battles to fight. New Testament Christians taking their first few steps of fully forgiven freedom on the other side of their baptismal burial in water encounter all sorts of devastating life and death struggles as well. Stop and think about this. Many are going to have to fight daily battles in the form of terrible temptations, addictions, things that they used to do and be involved and engaged in, immoral practices from their former way of life, which they are desperately going to have to fight to defeat and to, to not get entangled in again. And it's going to be a battle every day. Turn to me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6. And and I say this today because I want want us to understand as we we look at this and we use the parallelism or the illustration of the early pilgrims with Thanksgiving coming up, I want us to understand the spiritual implications for us as New Testament Christians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we got to understand the pull of the world. You know, some of us grew up in the church, okay? A lot of us didn't. I didn't grow up in the church. I grew up with no church at all, okay? Okay? And when you do that, you learn habits and language and things that, that, that are not right. And so, sometimes after becoming a Christian, the world's going to pull at you. It's going to pull at you to come back into it. Even if you do grow up in the church, the world is going to pull at you. So we can all understand this, but look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse nine. Remember, he's writing to Christians. Don't lose sight of that. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revelers, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Now listen. That first century church in Corinth was made up of all kinds of people, done all kinds of bad stuff. He says right here, this is what you used to be like. Let me ask you a question. Do you suppose that the moment those people were baptized, that that, those things were never, ever, ever a temptation again? Not a chance, right? Not a chance. You bring a person in who's who's an addict, or you bring a person in who's, who's used to stealing or any of those sorts of things and they've done it, for, it's not going to stop. The temptation's not going to stop. Satan's going to keep trying to get them. And we need to understand that we need to make sure they, they are prepared at all times with the full armor of God so they don't go back into that world because, again, once you step out of the water and you step onto the solid rock Christ, doesn't mean there aren't going to be battles to fight in this hostile new way of life. One of the other things that's going to happen with a lot of our new converts, maybe even some folks here know all too well what I'm talking about, one of the biggest battles that they're going to face is rejection from family and rejection from friends who used to be real close to them. Rejection, exclusion, and alienation from their former friends and family. Why? Because they became Christians. The Bible says that. Turn with me and look what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10. They're going to have battles to fight. They're going to have hard battles yet to fight, even trying to live in the freedom of this new existence, this new world, a new way of life as a Christian. Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 21. Now brother, deliver up brother to death, father is child, and children arise rise up against parents, cause them to be put to death, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. We understand that, of course, he's talking to his disciples right then and there about that, we understand that, it's a specific context, but it was going to happen to them, but it's also going to happen to us, look in verse 34 of this same chapter. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Jesus said there's going to be struggles. When people come to me and they decide to follow me, There's going to be family struggles, there's going to be strife, because not everybody in the family is going to want them to be a Christian. Not everybody in the family is going to treat them well. I've experienced what this means, and I know a lot of you have to some degree or another as well at the time. One of the biggest things that's going to happen when people become Christians is that they're going to be alienated by former friends and family. And and I keep harping on this, but it's so important that we understand this. This is why they've got to be well-armed for the fight in this new world. Turn to me to 1 Peter 4. You see, if we don't do our best to be their family, if we don't let them know that we are their family, if we do not hold them and love them as their family, what's their temptation going to be? slip right back into where they were before, to go back to the oppression of sin. Peter understood that. He says this in 1 Peter 4, 3 through 5. He says, We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account of him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He said when you stop living that old lifestyle oh man they are just going to have all kinds of bad things to say about you they're going to be amazed that you don't run with them into that same lifestyle anymore look what he says in verses 12 through 16 beloved do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you but rejoice to the extent you partake of christ's sufferings when his glory is revealed you may also be glad with exceeding joy If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their party is blasphemed, but on your party is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Peter knew. Peter knew what was going to happen. We need to understand it too. We've got to be aware Of some of the struggles that those who are separated from the oppression of sin by the watery grave of baptism and come out to live their new life in a new world for Christ gonna have some awful battles to fight some of us have fought them some of us know the scars it's interesting to know here before I go any further that the word pilgrims the word pilgrims occurs three times in the scripture it is a translation of a Greek word, which means a stranger, one who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to reside there by the side of the natives. Sojourner in a strange place, a foreigner. That's the way, that's the way that word which occurs in 1 Peter one, 1 and 2.11 is translated, or that's the word it comes from and is translated. In New Testament metaphor, pilgrims is used in reference to heaven as the native country of one who sojourns on the earth, Hebrews eleven thirteen. 13. You see, throughout the Bible, we are told that when we rise to walk in newness of life, we are a different people. We are a peculiar people, the King James says in 1 Peter 2. We're a peculiar people. We're a different people. We have, a, we have a different set of standards. We have a different God. We have a different lifestyle. We have a different system of beliefs. You know, Karen and I have traveled from our native Maine to South Dakota and now to Oklahoma. And to a very small degree, we understand what it means to be a stranger living in a strange land with strange language and strange customs and habits. We still have a few of ours, but as the Bible uses the word pilgrim, it's talking about somebody that's different from everybody around them, somebody, and surely the pilgrims in colonial New England were so different from the native landscape and the native peoples. Another parallel I want to bring to mind as we progress through history and as we look at the life of a Christian by comparison, time went by. The pilgrims progress began to become more obvious as the colonies begin to grow and to thrive just as a christian begins to grow and to thrive they became more prosperous but you know what here's the thing remember who had oppressed them at first the, the, the english king james and so they had fled and they had been separated from their oppressor by the water, and they've landed, and they've, they've, they've established these colonies, and they're getting prosperous, and they're beginning to grow. Let me ask you a question. Did the English want to just let them go at that point? No, and, and it's the same way. See, after the colonies began to grow, after they became prosperous, they got to a point where they were being taxed into oblivion. And you, we know what they did, right? We know that on July the 4th, 1776, you know, 150 years later, they declared their independence. Because you see, their old nemesis wasn't willing to let go of them. And let me tell you what, Satan is not willing to let go just because somebody's baptized. Now, at that point, they're forgiven. Yes. At that point, they're saved. Yes. At that point, they have the promise of God. Yes. But you know as well as I do that the second you're baptized, Satan doesn't stop trying, does he? He keeps turning on coming back for you, don't he? He keeps trying to draw you back in. He keeps trying to to make sin your master, doesn't he? Well, England wasn't gonna leave the colonies alone, so the Revolutionary War began. Well, colonists won that, or the Americas won that. But you know what happened then? Wasn't too long after that war was over and America had won, that out on the open seas, the English began impressing some American sailors and saying, well, you're English anyway, and the War of 1812 happened. You see, my point is this. England wasn't going to leave America alone just because they said, we're over here now, and you need to leave us alone. They kept trying, kept trying to take America back. And Satan, is even more tenacious. Just because you become a Christian does not mean he's going to leave you alone. He's going to keep coming back. He's going to keep coming after you with everything he's got. He's not going to stop. Repeatedly, their former master refused to accept their newfound freedom and forced them to fight hard, that is, the colonies, to maintain it. Life as a Christian is like that, a series of hard fought battles against the old sins that used to reign and rage within a person. And they repeatedly seek to try to reassert, or Satan continually seeks to try to reassert his dominion over a person, pulling them back and enslaving them once again. 2 Peter 2 20 through 22. I want to fast forward to today. You know, The many battles fought and won since that initial day in 1620 when those pilgrims first stepped out of the water, off of the water, America has been blessed by God with an incredible abundance, more than anybody could have imagined. America has grown rich, powerful, sleek, fat, Prosperous. Just like the Old Testament people of God when they entered the promised land, God told them, Deuteronomy 30, you're going in there and I'm, I'm going to give you everything. You're going to be blessed. And then you remember what God told them? He said, when you've gotten in there and you've grown sleek and prosperous, He said, you're going to forget me. You're going to turn your back on me. America's done the same thing, to a large degree. To a large degree. It's got to be one of the, does this, maybe it doesn't strike anybody else as ironic, but to me, it, it strikes me as just a terrible, sad, tragic irony of our time. That this coming Thursday, our nation, largely, largely, is going to get together and, in some form or fashion, thank God for their blessings, the same God whom they refuse to acknowledge by their obedience, they're going to thank for His blessings that they enjoy by His providence. Does that strike anybody else as ironic? God's been kicked out of almost every facet of American life, largely, not all, we're here. But so much God has been kicked out of everyday life and yet we're going to get together and thank him. We're not going to to obey him as Lord. We're We're going to kick off his Lordship, but we'll get together and thank him for all the good stuff he's given us. It just strikes me as a little ironic. But before we judge our nation too harshly, perhaps we should acknowledge that the same thing can happen in the church how often does it happen do you think that some of those people who were set free from sin in the waters of christian baptism they were separated from their enslavement to sin by the water by their faith obviously but by water baptism And they rose to walk in newness of life decades ago. Since that time, they fought battles because sin has sought to enslave them again. But they fought the battles. And they've won to maintain that God-given freedom and victory through many a trial and temptation. But maybe they've grown just a little too proud along the way. And they've come to a point where they kind of, they wouldn't, Come out and say this, but where they kind of rebel against God's authority on things that that they don't want to accept. They've come to the point where, yeah, yeah, they've they fought the battles and all that, but you know what? They just there's certain things that God tells them to do. They just don't want to do. It might have to do with some some sin they don't want to let go of. It may have to do with with not wanting to evangelize. It may have to do with not wanting to teach or serve or study or fellowship with. The rest of their brethren on a regular basis maybe something like that but yet 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 still they gather around the Lord's table in the Lord's house some Lord's some Lord's days and they observe the tradition of the Sunday feast and gathering they observe the tradition of giving thanks to that same Lord whom they in reality marginalize and minimize the rest of the time. Think about that. We can criticize our nation for kicking God out of their lives, but still gathering to give thanks to God for his providence, etc., in some form or fashion, but... How many Christians just gather for the tradition of the feast don't really live for God the rest of the week they minimize him they marginalize him they still go through the tradition they still go through the motion but really the rest of the time they don't live with any deep allegiance or obedience to him that's what God's Old Testament people did may God help us all to ensure that none of us ever follow that example Let's not just keep the feast as a tradition. Thanking God for what he's done for us. But then not respecting what he's done for us and how we should submit to his lordship the rest of the time and fall into the same trap that our nation has. Let none of us ever allow ourselves to sit back and thoughtlessly partake of the Lord's Supper. This this spiritual feast of thanksgiving, because that's exactly what it is, simply out of some sense of time tested assembly asserted tradition while failing to truly repent and live for the Lord the rest of the time Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10:21 and 2 but let a man examine himself and so I'm sorry 1 Corinthians 11:28 and 9 says but well, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. He also said in 1 Corinthians ten twenty-one and 2, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This morning as we close, may God help all of us never to slide in that direction of just partaking of the feast without truly, truly acknowledging God the rest of the time by our humble obedience. I wish you all a happy and holy Thanksgiving Day this coming Monday and Tuesday. And Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, and especially Sunday, because for the blood bought child of God, every day is a day to give thanks to God. <coughs> this morning, if you are not a child of God, if you're not one of His children, the Bible tells us that you can be. You've heard the Word of God. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of the living God? Are you willing to confess it? Are you willing to repent of your sins and be baptized for the forgiveness of those sins? If you do, you'll become a pilgrim. You can get through the waters of Christian baptism and rise to walk in newness of life, and we will help you in a new hostile envi- environment and existence to have the Bible study and the weaponry that you need to continue to walk forward to victory. This morning, if you would be baptized or if you need the prayers of the church, please come to the front as we stand and sing.